When I was in seminary, I don't know, I don't remember this gentleman's name, but I met this older gentleman. He was probably at the time in his mid-50s. Um, I was uh, in my early or late 20s, I believe, so he seemed like an older guy to me. Um, but he was an old order German Baptist. How many of you are familiar with that? that group, the Old Order German Baptists. They look just like the Amish. They dress like the Amish. They look like the Amish, but they um, can drive vehicles and stuff like that. So I had met this gentleman, and he, man, he was such a gracious, godly man. Real humble and sweet. And um, I worked at a newspaper at the time. He wasn't in seminary. Um, he worked at the same newspaper that I did for my job. And so um, because I worked in the production department, there was a lot of downtime. So I would show up and have to just simply wait for the presses to start. And so he was always there. He, would, he was a driver like I was where we would take up newspapers. I would do what are called bundle drops, which is to drop the newspapers off at all the kids' houses so they can deliver them, and that's what he did. Um, so anyway, we'd have a lot of downtime. So, man, I just loved chatting with him and talking to him because we shared a lot in common. He was a believer. But what was interesting is... Um, we got to talking one time. He had purchased a, a, not a new car, it was an older car. And um, he was telling me how he was getting in trouble because he hadn't painted over the chrome on his vehicle yet. And I thought that was a rather interesting statement. I said, maybe painted over the chrome. And he's like, well, in our denomination, we can't drive vehicles with chrome on them because it's considered sort of uppity and you know, fancy. So he said, I haven't had a chance yet to paint the chrome on my car yet. So I looked at my thought, well, that's kind of silly, you know. I said, that's a little bit silly, isn't it? He goes, well, as much as it is silly, he said, I have to live, you know, by the rules and stuff. So it opened up some discussion about his faith and his denomination. And I said, well, you kind of look Amish, you act Amish in some respects, but let's talk about this kind of stuff. And so one of the things I learned was that growing up, he used to play guitar and had a beautiful voice. Well, when he um, became an official member of the church, because at a certain age they have to commit to the church or not, um, he had to give up playing guitar. Because in that church they only sang a cappella. And so I said, well, why is it? He goes, well, because singing, doing solos, or even playing instruments is considered a bit prideful and arrogant because it's all self-focused. It's all focused on you and it draws attention to yourself. I thought, well, that's a little silly, isn't it? Yeah, he said, it's a little silly, but when I committed to the church, that's what I had to do. And then he talked about um, two other issues that they had that he thought were, like me, a little bit silly, that he said, but it's things we have to deal with. And he pulled his hat off, and he goes, you notice my hat here. He goes, you notice the size of the brim. And I said, uh-huh. And he's like, became very fashionable in our church a few years ago, where men began to wear derby hats, which had a very narrow brim. And he said, so we had a whole entire conference, our yearly conference, where we debated whether, we not, whether or not men should be allowed to be, wear derby hats. And the decision was made that we can't wear derby hats. We all have to wear exactly the same hats for the same reason. It was a vain statement. If you went and got a derby hat, you were drawing attention to yourself, you know. And then the other issue was water skiing. Should women be allowed to water ski? Because they could own boats and stuff like that, you know. Um, and the issue became that they, the women could not water ski because um, it was sort of a vain thing and because they would ski in their dresses um, because they couldn't wear swimming suits and it wasn't modest. It's like a wet um, burka contest. It's like a wet burka contest, exactly. My, and my point of bringing all this up is, is this. He was a gracious, godly man. I loved him to death. Um, and one of the things I really loved about him was he didn't necessarily agree with those convictions, but he loved the church. He loved the denomination. 
And he submitted to those things. And so he gave up playing guitar, which he missed dearly. You know, and in his case, you couldn't even do it privately. You know, it was one of those things where, no, you just can't play guitar, you know. Um, they dressed the same. They talked the same. Within that denomination, there wasn't a whole lot of flexibility or freedom to disagree. It was very much like the Amish in that you all dressed the same, looked the same, act the same, believed the same. And yet, um, again, he submitted to that and was gracious. And, and um, so we had, a, we had a, some great times and had a lot in common and, and fellowship. Um, but as I started looking at the chapter we're going to look at today, it was, I was reminded of him. Because I think he had the right attitude. Um, the passage we're going to look at today is really, Paul is really going to address how we respond to what I'm going to call matters of conscience or differences of opinion within the church. How are we supposed to um, address those things? We obviously, when we look at the church, not everybody agrees. Now, we have certain doctrines that we would hold as sacred, things that we believe the scriptures teach directly that are important to us. And it's important that we all believe the same things in those. Because if it's true, it's true, right? Which means salvation by faith. Okay? Um, obviously, it's important that when we have something spelled out in the scriptures, in black and white, as either right or wrong, truthful or not truthful, it's important that we agree on those issues. However, there's a lot of things the scriptures don't address. Should women be able to water ski? You know, can men wear derby hats? Can you have chrome on your vehicle? So what do we do with those things? How do we as Christians um, interact? So Paul's going to do... Um, Really, uh, I'm going to call it a three-week series here for us. Today, he's going to address our um, our attitudes towards one another when it comes to how to deal with matters of conscience or con- differences of opinions and convictions. So he's going to deal with the attitude. What kind of attitude should we have in our heart? Next week, he's going to deal with our behavior. How do we live that out? How do we behave in that environment with difference of, of opinions? And then the last week, he's going to sort of give us more of a sort of a broader view of that overall, sort of the principles behind some of that. So we're in Romans chapter 14 today, and we're going to look at just the first 12 verses. I'm going to go ahead and read these for us, and then we'll go back and we'll digest, digest it. Romans chapter 14, he says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion, on his opinions, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord he for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, and he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one 
each one of us will give an account of himself to God. I'm going to try to draw out a couple of principles for us here. The first one is this. When it comes to matters of conscience or conviction, Paul commands us here to accept one another rather than to judge one another. So again, the first principle here is that when it comes to dealing with matters of conscience or conviction, differences of opinions, we're called on to accept one another rather than to judge one another. Look at what Paul starts off with in verse 1. He says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith. He uses that word a little bit later um, in regard to Christ, that we're to accept one another just as, just as Christ has accepted us. So he starts off with this interesting statement, except the one who is weak in faith. Paul's going to address two, I'll call them groups of people here. The first one is the weak in faith. The other is, even though Paul doesn't use the phrase, I'm going to refer to him as the strong in faith. He doesn't specifically use that until, I think it's chapter 15, verse 1. So he's talking about two groups of people. Those he refers to as weak in faith and those he's going to refer to as strong in the faith. Those who are strong in the faith are those who understand the freedom that they have from religious, ritualistic practices. The best way to think of it is, in Paul's day, you had the Jews who were very ritualistic in their practices. They had the rules, the regulations of the Old Testament. So the weak in faith likely is, is a reference to the Jews, the Christian Jews that were struggling a little bit. Notice he says in verse 2, One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who eats, or he who is weak eats vegetables only. So basically what you have here is the person, one person he says has faith that he may eat all things. That's likely a reference probably to the Gentile Christians that weren't bound by the Old Testament laws. So they didn't have any problem eating the stuff that they found in the marketplace. On the other hand, you had another group, who struggled with eating all of that. And so Paul sort of spells that out here. One person has faith that he can eat all things. That's the strong in faith. Paul would refer to him here. But he who is weak, the weak in faith, focuses only on vegetables. It doesn't mean here that he's a vegan or vegetarian. The backdrop to this is what was sold in the marketplaces. The meat here refers to food sacrificed to idols. And so you had those who had no problem going into the marketplace and buying the food, even knowing it had been sacrificed to idols, and eating it. The Jews had a real problem with that, because the Old Testament's um, commandments against idolatry. So that's what Paul is really dealing with here. So the weak in faith believe they are still bound by those Old Testament rules and regulations. Now, one thing that becomes really clear in the scriptures is that the Old Testament, the teachings of the law, if you will, were fulfilled in Christ. Paul himself obeyed some of the Old Testament laws when he was around Jews, but when he was around Gentiles, didn't see that he was bound to those things. He understood the freedom that he had in Christ to not be bound by some of the ritualistic laws of the Old Testament any longer. Think about that, some of the sacrificial stuff. There's no indication that Paul participated in, on a regular basis, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. So sometimes Dave Malin should actually have vegetables he probably should, yes. Not he, all the time. But not all the time, but probably he should. Well, it's this issue of eating with my mouth open. <laughs> there are some who are strong in the faith that only eat meat, you know. Um, so what we basically have here is this, this difference of opinion, if you will. You have some in the church that said, eating that meat is a sin, you shouldn't do it. And then you had others that were saying, 
Well, no, it's not a problem. We can eat it. it it's fine. So you have a difference of opinion. Well, the question is, who's right? Because that's what we want to know, right? Who's right? Who's wrong? You know? I want you to turn to First um, Corinthians chapter 8. And this is not the story, but uh, as you're turning to First uh, Corinthians chapter 8, do you remember the story of, of Peter? When Peter was being told to go to the Gentiles, anybody remember that from Acts chapter 10? God tells him to go to the, the Gentiles, and, and Peter freaks out. I can't go to the, you know, they're dirty people, you know, because the Jews were taught to separate themselves from the Gentiles. And so God, remember what God does? He brings down this blanket. What was on the blanket? Anybody remember? Bacon. (laughs) There was pork. Okay? So God brought this blanket down and told Peter to eat. And what did Peter do? He said, no. He said, I'm not going to eat what you've declared unclean. And you remember what God's response was? Don't call unclean what I've called clean. In other words, he was teaching Peter, Peter, no, it's okay. Okay? It's time to go to the Gentiles. Okay? They didn't have to separate themselves anymore. So even Peter had to learn how to manage things that weren't spelled out in black and white. The Old Testament never demanded that you didn't associate with an, with an unbeliever. That had become more of their practices because of what they did. And so what we basically have here is, and we've got to be really careful because when it talks about being weak in faith versus strong in faith, it has more to do with an individual's theological understanding of the freedoms they have in Christ. It doesn't mean that this person is very weak and he has no faith. What it means is that his theological understanding of the freedoms we have in Christ is not developed well enough yet. He doesn't really understand the freedom that he has in Christ. And so that's what was binding these these Jews. They still felt that they were bound to the Old Testament law. In fact, if you remember that when Paul would go from city to city, the Jews would follow him and try to educate those Jews after Paul left, and even the Gentiles, that you have to still obey the law. Because they didn't understand the freedom they had in Christ. They were not theologically well-developed in their understanding of the freedom that Christ now offered. And so that's really what we're talking about here, is when somebody has a, a conviction of something they can or cannot do, sometimes that conviction is based on a lack of theological understanding, a good understanding of God's Word. And that's what we're really dealing with here. And so... What happens with this? Well, look at um, Peter's case. Peter theologically didn't understand, and God had to teach him. Would we say that Peter was weak in faith, had no faith? Obviously, no. But his understanding was somewhat weak. And so that's the way the phrase is being used here, okay? But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll see a backdrop of exactly what was going on. 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idol, idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the things, or eating the things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, he's referring basically not to deity, but um, small g's, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things and are, and we exist through him. 
However, not all men have this knowledge. In other words, what he's saying is, we understand that idols are nothing. Because there are no gods. But he says, not everybody understands this yet. Likely a reference to the Jews. that don't really understand that the idols really are nothing. Okay? But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak as defiled. There he's probably referring to Gentiles that are practicing idol sacrifices and worship and eating. It's their form of worship. The Greeks would sacrifice food to their gods and then sell the food in the marketplace. So Paul's saying, some of those Gentiles really think those gods exist. So we not only have Jews who weren't quite, quite clear in understanding that idols are really nothing, there's no real God behind it, but we have the Gentiles who really thought there were gods behind it. Okay? So he says, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. In other words, it doesn't make any difference if you eat the food that's been sacrificed to idols. It's not going to make you any holier. It's not going to make you a sinner. He goes on. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple... Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? What he's saying there is this. Even though we have an understanding of this, Paul's saying, even though I understand that I can go into that temple and I can eat that meat, and it's not a form of worship, it's just dead cow or dead pig on a plate, I can do that. But he said, however, what happens now if I go into the temple and I do that, and a Gentile sees that, and he assumes that I believe like he believes. And so I'm actually there worshiping. I'm actually there eating as a form of worship to these false gods. That's what's communicated to him, because he thinks that's what I'm doing. So Paul now issues a warning and a caution to say, that's not a good thing. Because even though you understand that what you're doing is okay, the fact that somebody else is watching you do that and they don't understand, they don't have the knowledge you do, now you're wounding them. Now you're wounding their conscience because all you're doing is saying, I'm worshiping idols too. I'm worshiping your false gods. Does that make sense? So he's warning them about that. He says, verse 11, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is now ruined. The brother for whom sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, meaning meat sacrificed in the marketplace, or uh, sold in the marketplace, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So basically what he says here is, not everybody understands the freedom they have in Christ. I'm not going to allow that freedom now to hurt my brother or sister who hasn't gotten to that point yet. So he says, I'm not going to go to a temple and eat meat sacrificed to, to um, a false god when I have others in the community, the Gentiles and even some Jews that see me doing it because they haven't gotten to that point yet. They haven't matured in their theological understanding of the freedom they have in Christ. So those Gentiles, they're going to think I'm worshipping other gods. That's going, to, that's going to simply tell them that that's okay. Well, Paul does it. Likewise, the Jews are going to be all offended by it because they think Paul's worshiping false gods as well. And Paul says, I'm not going to cause them to stumble by doing that. Now, it's interesting, because notice Paul here doesn't say it's right or wrong, necessarily, doesn't call them out. He does say, it's perfectly fine for me to eat meat. But he doesn't call them out for their lack of faith, I'll call it, their misunderstanding. In fact, he puts the burden on himself not to cause offense. 
So that's what he's dealing with here when he's talking to the Romans. They're from the same culture. They're all Greeks and Romans living in a society with false gods who sacrificed meat and then sold it in the marketplace. So that's the context behind what Paul is dealing with here. So Paul in this passage then really is going to set out some principles for us on how to get along in an environment like that. Because I think our tendency might be to correct that brother, right? You know, or just to barrel over it. Hey, I can do whatever the heck I want. You know, you just need to grow up and deal with it. But that's not what he does. Look at what he does here. His first challenge is to the more mature. In other words, the more mature there, again, is not having to do with their maturity and their faith as much as it is his maturity and their understanding, scripturally speaking. He calls on them to accept those. Look at verse 1 again. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. The word for accept there is the word for receiving somebody. It has the connotation of warmly welcoming somebody. It's not just, it's not the word tolerate. Paul doesn't say tolerate them. He says warmly receive them. Warmly welcome them. Treat them like a brother or sister in Christ. So the idea is that the more mature are to not just accommodate the weak, but to warmly welcome them into fellowship. They're to accept, not necessarily their convictions, but accept them. He uses that same word a little bit later in chapter 15, verse 7, when he says, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So he calls on them not to pass judgment on the less mature. Look at verse 1b, if you will. He says, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. So we're to accept those who differ in our opinions, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on those opinions. Most translations treat this phrase as a reference to arguing or quarreling with them. I think that's probably a good way to treat this. Don't argue with them over it. Don't quarrel over it. Don't make it an issue. More literally, it reads, accept not into judgment of opinions. It's interesting how oftentimes, um, I, think, I think I've shared this story before, a professor of mine, whenever they would travel, uh, he and his wife would pick out a church that they, maybe was outside the normal, they were all Grace Brethren, and um, they would choose a denomination or something that maybe was outside their normal field of experience, if you will. And so on one particular morning, they chose a Baptist church. And they didn't know it at the time, but it happened to be a fundamentalist, independent Baptist church, the King James only kind of thing, you know. And um, so anyway, they show up at the church, and everybody is super friendly. Um, They greeted him at the door, you know. They introduced him to the pastor and all that kind of stuff. He said it was a wonderful experience. He said, and it just seemed so genuine. He goes, you know how when you walk in the church, it just seems fake, like they're all getting paid to greet you? He's like, this was not like that. It was genuine and warm and friendly. And we kept commenting to each other about how, man, if all churches were like, this would be awesome, you know. And he's like, and then right before the service started, one of the ushers said, hey, we have a special place for visitors to sit. And they took him all the way down to the front of the church and sat him in the very first pew, row of pews, right in front of the podium. Okay, pastor comes out and gets up on the podium and he says, well, I had a sermon prepared for this morning, but God put it upon my heart when I walked in this morning to change my message. And so this morning's message, and then he began to preach, and the message was on why women shouldn't wear pants in church. And about five minutes into the message... Professor Bickle and his wife are sitting there and they begin to realize his wife is the only one wearing pants in the entire church out of of the women. He said, if I wouldn't have been so embarrassed and felt it would embarrass my wife because everybody would see that it was aimed at her, I would have gotten up and walked out. 
why warmly welcome somebody in like that and then parade them down front for the purpose of then calling them out and embarrassing and mocking them. Some people thrive on that. They love to argue and debate on little insignificant points. I don't mind arguing theological issues. In fact, I welcome it. When somebody... (laughs) If somebody wants to challenge me on a conviction I have from the scriptures, I love them coming up to me and saying... Let's go to the Word. Let's talk about this. What I hate is when somebody comes up and has a difference of opinion and they refuse to open up the Word of God with me. I don't want to debate with you or talk with you when all we're going to do is throw out opinions at one another. I don't thrive on that. But if you want to debate and discuss what the Scriptures teach, that's a good thing for us. We should be willing to do that, right? But some some folks just thrive. When they find somebody that has a difference of opinion, they want to challenge that opinion immediately. I had an individual one time, we, were, we had him at the house, we were talking, and he asked me a question. I had never met him before. Um, Amy knew his wife, and so they came over for dinner, and um, he asked me a question about a conviction I might have. And I don't remember what the topic was, and so I said, well, you know, theologically I think this, and within about two or three minutes, he literally stood up, face bright red, gritting his teeth, and he said, we're done here, I'm leaving. I kind of looked at him and I said, um, so this offends you? And he just started spewing off at the mouth a couple of... Finally, I just looked at him and I stood up and I said, I'm sorry, but you can sit down now. This is my house. And I will not be addressed that way in my house. You are arrogant, proud, and rude. You asked me my opinion. I gave you my opinion and the fact that you don't like it, you have this right to call me the things you just called me. Sit down. We'll open our Bible. We'll talk about this. So he did, he sat down, we opened the word up, we talked a little bit, but there was just something about, you know, we got to argue, we got to debate on this, you know? It's just not appropriate as Christians. And so Paul here says, we're not supposed to warmly receive one another for the purpose of arguing and debating. Now, calling one another out, enjoying that tension, you know, as I'm chastising you for whatever you believe because you just don't get it. Whatever it is. He goes on, he says in verse 3, that we're supposed to not look upon them with contempt. It says, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. To have contempt means to despise or look down on somebody. In this case, Paul is referring to looking down upon the less theologically mature. In other words, in this particular instance... You have the Gentiles, those who are, in this instance here, probably more mature theologically. They understood they weren't bound by the Old Testament law. They understood they had freedom in Christ to eat. And Paul says, you shouldn't look at those Jews who don't understand that yet with contempt. Look down upon them. That happens. Isn't that usually what happens with our difference of opinions when we're arguing with somebody over something that we disagree on? We think we're right. We think they're wrong. And be real frank, don't we just think they're stupid, folks? Don't we just, in our heart, really think they don't get it? We get it, they don't. Isn't it? Come on. Am I the only one that feels that way? You know? What's that? Yeah, Flat Earth. Dave sent a thing about Flat Earth, a Flat Earth conference I was kind of chuckling at the other day. But that's often at the heart of it. We We look at those who don't quite understand the way we do with contempt. We look down upon them. Now, obviously I say that a little facetiously. I'm not accusing you of all doing that. But that seems to be in the, the normal, natural thing that we, we sense and we feel. Right? Um, I'll be real frank. I do. 
I've told people, hey, if I have a conviction, I think I'm right, then I'd be a fool to say, well, I'm not right. No, if I think I'm right, I think I'm right. Okay, but I don't have the right then to look down on somebody else who might disagree with that, especially when it comes to theological matters or, or other things. So, his primary concern is that the mature don't welcome into fellowship or extend a graceful arm to somebody for the purpose of arguing and debating with them, looking at them with contempt because they're less mature. He then goes on to the less mature, and he challenges them with this. He calls on them not to judge those who live contrary to their personal convictions. So while the more mature, the ones who have maybe a little better theological understanding, aren't supposed to look down upon or with contempt on those who don't, the opposite are those, in this case, the Jews, who are now judging the Gentiles. Well, you're eating meat, and you shouldn't be, and so now I get to judge you for that. He goes on, he says, And the one who does not eat, this is three, is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So first off, the one that they're judging is a child of God because God has accepted him. And second, they have no right to judge because they're not his master. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To him, his own master, he falls or stands, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. You know, James repeats that in chapter 4. He says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, we've got to be careful with that. We've got to explain that a little bit. The chapter 7 of Matthew, the context there, he basically says, don't judge one another. But then he goes on to say, take the speck out of your own eye before you judge one another. What's his point? Um, that when we judge purely based on our own personal convictions or thoughts or likes or dislikes, and we start pointing fingers at other people, that's a form of judgment that's unacceptable to the godly individual. What we are called to do is if we see somebody caught in a sin, to first stop and make sure we're not guilty of the very same thing, and then we're able to confront, and the scriptures actually give us guidelines to do that. Galatians chapter 6 says that we do that with the sole purpose of rescuing somebody, of helping them out of that sin. James goes on in in chapter 5 and says that the one who rescues or saves a brother saves a soul from death. So we are called upon to look at other people and to, in some respects, judge them, but not on issues like this. Not, you shouldn't be doing that. When it's not something we can tie specifically to the scriptures. So, there's all kinds of things in our own culture and society today that we don't necessarily always agree on. For instance, is it appropriate for a Christian to go out and have a beer? I would argue that in this room we probably have differences of opinion. Okay. Biblically, can I make a case one way or the other? I have my convictions. Somebody else may have their convictions. Okay. The only thing the scriptures clearly point out is that if I choose to have a beer, it shouldn't cause somebody else to stumble. So how do I work that out? Okay. But yet, if I see somebody having a beer and I want to point a finger and judge them, I may have convictions about that, but I have to be very careful because I can't make a biblical argument that having a beer is wrong. What I can argue is that getting drunk is wrong. What I can argue is that if your beer having is causing somebody else to stumble or sin, that's a biblical issue. But if you want to have a beer in the privacy of your own home, biblically I can't make an argument that it's right or wrong. 
So I have no right to judge you for it. Likewise, you have no right to look at me with contempt because I don't drink. Right? So there's all kinds of issues. You know, should we go to see movies? Should we see PG movies? PG-13 movies? What about R-rated movies? What about movies that have war scenes? It's killing. You know? There's all kinds of things that are difficult for us because we differ on our opinions of what's right or what's wrong. And it causes us sometimes to judge one another, other times to look at each other with contempt. And Paul is saying, neither one of those are appropriate. He's going to go on, and he's going to give us a second principle. When it comes to matters of conscience or conviction, we must recognize that we all serve Jesus Christ in those convictions. We all serve Jesus Christ in those convictions. Paul calls on us to allow one another another to have and hold our own convictions. Look at verse uh, 5. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. That's just the reality. He's talking there about Jews celebrating the Old Testament um, expectations of the Sabbath and the religious holidays. So, some regard one day better than another. A day to celebrate. He says, others, however, don't. Well, that's the Gentiles. They didn't celebrate the Old Testament Jewish holidays. But then he says this, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Did you catch that? Each person must be fully convinced within his own mind. So those who regard one day above another is likely a reference to the Jews who believe they had to celebrate the Old Testament Sabbath and other feasts. Those who regard every day alike are probably the Gentiles who didn't believe they were having to submit to the Old Testament laws. In fact, the early Christians didn't necessarily celebrate the Sabbath. Gentiles met on Sundays, which is why we meet on Sundays. Many of the Christian Jews still celebrated the Sabbath, so they had a difference of opinions. But you notice that in the case of the mediating that we've already discussed, Paul indicates that it's a matter of conscience, of conviction. He doesn't declare one to be right or one to be wrong. Rather, he commands that each must fully be convinced in their own minds. Let each one in his own mind fully accomplish it. Is probably a better way to read that. In other words, do it with your own convictions. If you feel as though you should celebrate the Sabbath, then celebrate the Sabbath. Be fully convinced in your own mind and celebrate it. And when you celebrate it, celebrate it to God. If you don't believe you have to meet on the Sabbath and prefer to worship on Tuesday evenings at 6.35 p.m., then be fully convinced in your own mind that you need to worship on Tuesday nights at 6.35 p.m. Just be fully convinced in your own mind. So he says, whether we share the same opinion or not, we are all living our convictions in service to the Lord. Look at verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9. Let me go ahead and go back to Romans here so I can... He says, He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. Isn't that really true? When you live out your convictions, whether if you believe it's okay to to go see a movie, do you sense you're sinning against God? No, you feel as though you're honoring God by just enjoying one of your freedoms. If you believe that you shouldn't watch a particular movie, and so you decide not to watch that movie, do you generally sense, I'm doing this because it honors God? Yeah, that's the way we are. And so he says, that's the way it is. Okay, He who eats, eats to the Lord. He who does not eat, doesn't eat to the Lord. He goes on. He says, and he who eats not, or does not eat, gives thanks to God. 
For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. Or if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. Now, there's all kinds of interesting language in there. We're not going to spend much time on it. Um, But his primary point here is this, that each one of us, really, our heart's desire is to serve the Lord in our convictions. That's why some don't drink and some don't have a problem with it. Their desire is to simply honor and serve the Lord. Now, it's a blanket statement. You know, I mean, we all sometimes do things that don't honor the Lord. Okay, but he's, he's just trying to drive home the point here that that brother who has a different conviction than you or that sister that has a different conviction than you, they're just trying to serve the Lord in those convictions. And they're obeying their conscience. And that's important. Elsewhere, we're told that if you think it's wrong to do it and you do it, what is that? Sin. If you think you should do something and you don't do it, it's what? Sin. Well, what? how is that possible? Well, because there's some things that God does not spell out in black and white. This is sin, this is not. And leaves it up to your conscience. And those things that you honestly believe are right, when they don't directly violate the scriptures, are right when you do them. Those things that you are convinced are wrong, that maybe are not spelled out in the scripture, if you do them, they're wrong for you to do them. That's the bottom line. And so Paul says we have to recognize that those who have different convictions than we do, or opinions, they're just trying to serve the Lord. And the Lord is honored when they do that. And so we should allow them that freedom to do that. So not only are we not to look down upon one another or judge one another in our different convictions, we're to recognize that, really, we're just trying to serve the Lord, each one of us. The last principle is in verses 10 through 12. When it comes to matters of conscience or conviction, we must recognize that God is ultimately the judge, not us. God is ultimately the judge, not us. Look at verses 10 through 12. He says, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? He's talking there to the weak and the strong. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So basically what he says is, you shouldn't be all that worried about it anyway. Because you're not the judge. We all have to stand before God. And so while I might look at one individual and think to myself, he just doesn't get it. He thinks he has to jump through those hoops and he doesn't understand his freedom in Christ. And so there's this attitude of judgment in my heart looking upon him with contempt. And what that basically means is I've forgotten that his judge is the same as mine. My job isn't to judge him. Jesus' job is to do that. And he will face judgment. Which means that if what he's doing is wrong and he's still doing it, he'll be judged for that. Just like I will. Because if I'm wrong... I'll be judged too. I'm accountable to Jesus Christ in my convictions. So I need to be fully convinced in my own mind that those things are right or wrong and then live accordingly because I will face my judge. So it's not my job to judge you. It's not your job to judge me or to look look at each other with contempt. We should be comfortable enough saying, you know what? He's living or she's living according to their convictions and they're accountable to God for that. It's not my concern. My concern is that I'm going to face him. I ought to be more worried about that. 
Now, again, that doesn't mean that we never have concern for somebody else or we never challenge somebody else. Paul clearly challenged the Jews on their commitment to the law. He taught and instructed them, tried to help them understand they weren't bound by that. Paul was hounded by those same Jews. And so he made an effort. The book of Galatians goes to great lengths to try to educate the Galatians that you don't have to be bound to the law. So Paul dealt with those differing convictions, theologically tried to educate, tried to grow them. One of the reasons we we teach the way we do here is so that you learn and you grow. So my heart, when I see somebody who's maybe struggling with that, thinks they have to do something and biblically they really don't, that doesn't mean I avoid the issue with them. I'm not going to judge them for it or hold them in contempt, though. I have to allow them to live by their convictions. And if anything, if I discuss with them that particular issue and I say, you know what, I think you're missing something theologically, I think you don't understand something scripturally. Can we go through that and we walk through it? If they're still struggling with it, I shouldn't close the book and say, gosh, you're ignorant. Instead, I should say, well, you know what? Until you learn otherwise, you need to live by those convictions. You've got the freedom to do that. And if you don't, it's sin. So it's kind of this interesting balance, isn't it? We should all grow and learn and develop our theological understanding, but sometimes it takes time. And because of that, some learn, some don't necessarily learn. Some grow theologically, some don't grow quite as quickly. And it leads to having differences of opinions and matters of conviction and a conscience that we have to deal with within the church. And so we have rules here. First off, we don't judge one another for them. Second, we don't hold contempt We recognize that God ultimately is the judge, and so we're to allow them to live in those convictions, fully convinced in their own mind. That's one of the things I loved about this old order German Baptist guy from the newspaper. Um, His attitude was exactly what we find here. He was gracious and kind. He gave up playing guitar because he didn't want to cause others in the church to struggle with that. If they thought his playing guitar was because he was vain, he wouldn't do it. If he thought that his daughter's water skiing would cause others to stumble because some of the church thought it was immodest that their dresses were wet, his girls wouldn't water ski. But you know what's interesting is there was no contempt in this guy. I mean, he was more like me in his thinking, meaning more like a grace brethren in that, yeah, chrome is silly, water skiing is silly, derby hats are silly, it's all silly, Mike. But yet he subjected himself to those things because he didn't want to cause anybody to struggle or stumble. But beyond that, there was no contempt in this guy for those people that didn't see it the same way he did. That's exactly what Christ calls us to here. He was able to live under those, if you want to call them, rules or convictions of others um, without causing offense, but also not feeling like he was offended himself. That's pretty gracious. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here for us. So, today was all about the attitudes. Okay, what goes on up in here? Whether you think about judgment or whether you hold contempt, um, whether you're fully convinced in your own mind or not convinced in your own mind what's appropriate, what's not appropriate when it comes to these these rules, if you will. I'm going to share one last thing briefly with you here. How many of you are familiar with this phrase, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things clarity? Or charity, I'm sorry, charity. You know, I had to do a little bit of research on that because there, nobody really knows where that phrase came from. It's attributed oftentimes to Augustine, but there's no record in any of Augustine's writings that he ever used it. 
Um, the earliest account of that is found about the, ni- about the 1600s, and so it came from a book that was published um, from a German author. But, but let's look at that real quickly here. He says, in essentials unity, which basically means in those doctrines that we can argue from Scripture, those specific truths of the faith, we have to have unity. That's where the, the, um, the right to challenge false teaching comes from. When somebody comes into the church and tries to teach something um, that is not accurate scripturally, we have the right to confront that and to deal with that and to judge that because that's an essential thing. It's the truth of the scriptures. So with that, we're supposed to have unity. Non-essentials, that's a way of talking about these things. The things we simply differ on that, you know what, I, I can't go to the scriptures and tell you that you know, having a Budweiser is wrong. Okay? Um, in those things, what the author said was, we're supposed to have liberty. In other words, freedom. Graciousness, right? But then he goes on and he says this, in all things, charity, that's grace, that's mercy, that's acceptance. And so, regardless, we're always supposed to be charitable, gracious in how we handle it. I sometimes hate this phrase only because it kind of, you know, people use it all the time when it comes to differences of theology. Well, we just have to learn to disagree on that particular issue. And so, you know, remember the And they quote this phrase. It's like, but there's very little room when it comes to doctrinal integrity. This really is more about personal convictions. So I hate it when it's applied to theology. um, But uh, when it's applied to personal convictions like this, it makes a lot of sense.